Before we get started, I want to do a quick land acknowledgement. As I record this from Colorado Springs, Colorado, I'm currently in the unceded territory of the Ute, Apache, Arapaho, Comanche, and Cheyenne peoples. I would also like to recognize the peoples whose land we recreate on. Hey, and welcome back to Snow Interesting. I'm your host, Matt Silverman. I hope all of you out here in Colorado had a chance to take advantage of last week's storm and get out over the weekend. I had a stellar day around snow stake at Monarch Pass on Saturday. It was a bluebird day, not too crowded, great views, and some powder turns that couldn't be beat. As fun as it was, it's always important to remember the risk that comes with new snow loading, and I dug a super interesting pit that yielded some scary results. Luckily, we had scouted the zone ahead of time, and I had already marked that pit location as part of the no-no zone. More on that later. Before we get too deep into all this, let's get some basics out of the way. This episode might be a little more science-heavy than others, but we're going to talk about the basis of all this. What is snow? After that, we'll venture down into the pits and talk about the anatomy of snow pits and some basic tests we run on them. So, what is snow? If you're listening to this, I'm guessing you've seen it before. It's that big, white, fluffy stuff that falls from the sky. And if you ask most people, they'd probably say it's just frozen water. But it's so much more complicated than that. And it all comes down to one molecule, H2O. Spanning only about 0.27 nanometers across, which for reference, a strand of human DNA is about 2 nanometers, and a human hair it's about 90,000 nanometers. One molecule of H2O is incredibly complex, and if changed even a little bit, could end all life on Earth. If you can think back to seeing a photo of a water molecule at some point in your life, it has what's referred to as a bent shape. That is, there's one oxygen molecule in the middle, and then a hydrogen molecule on either side of it. But those hydrogen molecules don't stick straight out. They're skewed with an angle of 104.45 degrees between them. It's this angle that promotes the molecule's polarity and allows hydrogen to bond so well. It's also what makes it the only thing on Earth that can exist as a solid, a liquid, and a gas. If you were to change that angle by even a degree, those bonds wouldn't work and life as we know it would cease to exist. The phase of matter that the molecule is currently occupying is primarily influenced by two factors, the pressure it's under and the temperature it's experiencing. I'll throw a link in the episode description to a graphic of the phase equilibrium diagram, a diagram that shows the different stages of matter as they relate to temperature and pressure. This will be really important later on, as we begin to think about metamorphism in the snowpack. The point on the phase equilibrium diagram, where all three phases intersect, it's called the triple point, and it's the only place where you can see water melt, freeze, and boil all at the same time. It goes against everything we generally think should be able to occur in nature. If you change one of the variables, you can cause a sudden change, such as rapid sublimation. These phase changes become exceptionally important when you're thinking about how snow falls, as not only do they change the form the molecule is in, they also influence the shape the snowflake falls in. Contrary to what cartoons show, not all snowflakes fall in big pointy shapes. 
Those type of snowflakes do exist. They're called dendrites, and they make up the nice fluffy pow we love to ski, but they only form under certain conditions. Under other atmospheric conditions, you can see a wide variety of other crystal shapes, such as needles, prisms, plates, or columns. These different crystal formations become important when confronting the problem of snowfat cohesion and strength. Alright, that's enough of the hard science for the day. Let's talk about the fun part. Pits. This is going to be a very basic overview to lay the groundwork for people who have less experience, so I apologize if some of you grizzled backcountry hardos who know the snow better than the CAIC find this boring. I don't know about you guys, but personally, I love digging snow pits. Not only does it help me understand where I'm recreating, I just find it fun to try and isolate different layers and figure out what storm caused them. Once you have your pit dug, you can work up a profile. The level of detail of that profile depends on the observer and the snow conditions. Personally, if I'm skiing at a place that I'm at multiple times a month, chances are I know the snowpack pretty well. If there's a new storm, I might do a quick hand hardness scale or a quick compression test, but I likely won't take the time to do a full profile more than once or twice a season. If you're new to this, you might be wondering what the different tests we do in a snow pit are and what each of them can tell us. Today, we're going to talk about some of the more common tests you might do in the field. We'll save the more complicated ones for another show. I'm a fan of doing a temperature profile at the beginning of the pit while it's fresh and hasn't been exposed to the elements as much yet. I go through and get a temperature every 10 centimeters. I use this data later when I'm creating my profile workup to plot a temperature gradient. Temperature is a really important metric, as it can predict if the snow is faceting or rounding, which will affect its overall stability. Facets, which form in snowpacks with a high temperature gradient, are less cohesive and are more likely to collapse and act as a friction layer. Rounds, on the other hand, have more surface area touching each other. Generally, they're more stable. I like to think of it as if you had a bin with a bunch of oranges in it, and a bin with a bunch of chunks of wood thrown in there haphazardly. If you were to shake both the bins, the wood would move around a lot more, as it has more dead space and less friction. The next basic test is a hand hardness test that gives you an idea of the density of the snowpack. An added bonus of the hand hardness is its usefulness in isolating distinct layers that can be attributed to storms or specific weather events. The hand hardness scale starts with a fist, then goes to four fingers, one finger, a pencil, and a knife, and it's measured by which of these items you can push into the snowpack with roughly three pounds of force. Since nobody is really carrying a spring scale to measure the force they're pressing it with, it's often estimated as the force it takes to move the cartilage on your nose or cause your nose to hurt. This is a super subjective metric, and over the years, you kind of just get a feel for it. It's more important that you keep the force you use consistent within your test the difference between a three pound press and a four pound press aren't gonna skew your results beyond validity. Personally, I like to carry a few popsicle sticks in my snow science kit, and as I get through my hand hardness test, I throw a popsicle stick in as a visual marker of each of the layers. Some people prefer to just mark with a line in the snow. I find the convenience of the popsicle stick to be well worth it for their small weight in my pack. Once you have these layers isolated, it's time to do some grain ID. As we briefly touched on earlier, grain type and size are super important metrics for predicting layer stability and overall cohesion of the snowpack. 
there are so many different grain types. It would be impractical and frankly unnecessary for every backcountry recreator to memorize them all. But you should definitely be able to identify facets, rounds, surface hoar, and depth hoar. We'll go more in depth on those and to how to tell them apart in a later episode. Also worth noting with identifying crystals, even if you chill your card before you use it, pulling the crystals out of the snowpack will inevitably cause some metamorphism to occur, so it's imperative to operate fast. I like to pull my buff over my nose and mouth when I'm looking through the loop so that less of my hot breath gets on the crystal card. I'm not sure how much that actually does versus just making me feel better, but I do it anyways. Now let's get into the sexy part of the pit, the part everyone loves to talk about, stability tests. Before going into this, I think it's super important to understand the physics at work. There are three main types of forces we think about in physics, torque, compression, and shear. Torque is the twisting force. It's what you'd exert when you twist the screwdriver. Compression is exactly what it sounds like. It's an inward pushing force on an object. Lastly, the most important one to us is shear. Shear is unaligned forces pushing different parts of a body in different directions. The easiest example I like to think of for shear is a pair of scissors. When the blades of a scissor come down on a piece of paper, they're exerting a shear force that cuts it in half. In relation to our snowpack, if there's a weak layer, it'll shear off from the rest of the snowpack and slide. The cohesion between the layers is its shear strength. When you exert more than that shear strength and shear force, say from a skier sliding across it, that's when you begin to have issues with avalanches. The quickest and easiest stability test, something that I do in every pit I dig, is the standard compression test. Essentially, this test takes an isolated block of snow and sees how much force it would take to make a weak layer in the snow crack if the weak layer is even there. This test is the baseline test that will influence the other tests that you run on that pit. Not only is it quick and easy to run, the sheer quality of a fracture is the best metric we have for predicting avalanche severity. If a compression test yields a sudden planar result, where the faces are flat and look like someone just cut them with a knife, that shows an extremely weak layer with very little shear strength just waiting to slide. The next tool we have is the extended column test. The ECT is similar to the CT, except it not only tests if a weak layer will break, it tests if the layer has enough energy to propagate or spread through the entire snowpack we do this by isolating a longer column. You can break a weak layer in a compression test, but if it doesn't have enough energy for that crack to propagate, it won't do anything. Collapsing of weak layers without propagation is what causes woomphing in snowpacks, and we hear that all the time. Another more advanced test to see the slide potential of a slope is the propagation saw test. The PST is the only test where we isolate the column with the long axis following the fall line of the slope. Once the block is isolated, you run your saw across a weak layer that you identified in your hand hardness test or your compression test, and you see what would happen if that layer were to fracture. Some surfaces can separate, but the surface itself has too much friction to slide. The PST, as well as the next test we'll discuss, the Roosh block test, present a higher risk when completing them, since they have to be performed on slopes that have a great slide potential. The last test we'll discuss is the Rouge Block Test. The Rouge Block Test is the most fun and the most representative of if a skier can produce enough force for a face to slide. 
In this test, we isolate a two meter square block and jump on it with skis, again looking for cracking and propagation in the snowpack. The roost block is great, but significantly more time consuming and resource intense than other tests, making it an uncommon test for most recreationalists. This is not to discount the usefulness of other tests, such as the shovel shear test or the deep tap test, but those are less common and less useful in your everyday pit digging. As promised, before we wrap up here, let's talk a little about that pit I dug last weekend. I was skiing at Monarch Pass, near Snowstake, and dug a pit on an east-facing 25-degree slope. This slope was of particular interest to me since it was right around the corner from the Continental Divide and got a ton of wind loading from winds coming up the Gunnison Valley and wrapping around the corner onto this face. There was some visible cracking on the surface as well, which just added another layer of intrigue. Right off the bat, when I did my hand hardness test, I noticed a nice 80 centimeter slab of pencil hardness snow on top of a 10 centimeter layer of four finger snow. Definitely a scary weak layer and a nice big persistent slab. Shockingly enough though, that wasn't my weak layer when I did my stability tests. When I went to isolate the block for my compression test, I got a sudden planar fracture during isolation at 120 centimeters. It was right under a 15 centimeter layer of 4 to 5 millimeter hand hardness facets. When I pulled the block off, there was a lot of loose near surface faceting up there. I ran a PC PST and didn't get full propagation, but did have lots of woomphing and an arrested vertical fracture 40 centimeters into my cut. I'll throw a link to my profile in the episode description. That snowpack was scary, but it got even scarier for me today, after I was talking to a buddy who was skiing about a mile away on Monarch Pass the same day. That layer of 4 to 5 millimeter facets sitting on top of the pencil hard slab he got that to slide in a dry loose avalanche. It took him for a ride about 20 feet before he was able to arrest on a tree and hold on. He's okay, but that's a terrifying experience. And after looking at that snowpack, I have no trouble believing that that thing went. I hope that this information has been helpful. I know this was a long episode that was pretty information heavy. I hope you join us again for the next episode. The plan is to talk more about pit profiles how to interpret the results from the tests we just discussed, and how to read the data that gets recorded from a full profile. As always, feel free to follow me on Instagram at matt.silverman, and if you have any ideas for topics you'd want to hear about or guests you would like to hear on the show, shoot me a message. I'd love to hear them. Snow Interesting is produced in association with the Colorado College Outdoor Journal. The show is written and produced by me, Matt Silverman. Special thanks to the Colorado College Journalism Institute for making this show possible, and to Larea Zabaleta, editor of the CC Outdoor Journal, for indulging me in my snow pit nerdiness on that tour last weekend.